sermon text this morning is Galatians 5, 25 through 610. Hear the word of the Lord. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is called in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own burden. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is God's word. Uh, we just prayed. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built. And I want to add to that prayer and say, Lord, save us from the live stream. Save us, O Lord. From the live stream, we just one more example of why we cannot wait to physically be here. But I will say this is a sacrifice worth making so that when we gather, we can be sure that we're doing so responsibly, reasonably and safely. I had Avery read all the way through verse 10. We're only going to be covering through verse five this week. It's essentially going to be a two part sermon. We'll cover uh, part one this week and part two next week. I know you're so thrilled about that. Otherwise, this, this sermon would be at least over an hour. I want to start with a question. We've been asking a lot of questions about the Spirit and how the Spirit comes to bear on not only our individual lives, but our corporate life as a church. What does a church look like when the Spirit of God is at work in its members? What does a church look like when the Spirit of God is at work in its members. That's what it will take, right? That's what it will take. If, if we're going to be shaped into disciples who love God with all that we are and love our neighbor as ourselves, if, if we're going to see the gospel spread through our city, impacting and transforming lives, if, if we're going to see the gospel spread to all nations, and if we're going to maintain a spirit of unity in a bond of peace amidst much diversity, we're going to need the spirit. We're going to need the spirit at work in us and through us. And here's the good news. That's exactly why he was sent. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that the Spirit of God was sent to dwell in our hearts, to dwell in our corporate life as a church, 
so that he might work in us to change us from the inside out, so that he might work through us, so that we would see lives transformed for the sake of Christ in our city and in the nations. The Holy Spirit was sent to give us life. And the Holy Spirit was sent to lead us toward Jesus. Now, in order for a work of the Spirit to be seen in us and through us, Paul tells us very clearly here, we have to keep in step with him. We have to keep in step with the Spirit as he leads us. And in order to follow the Spirit as he leads, we're not only going to need to know where he's headed, but we're going to need to know what the journey will look like, or, or maybe better, what we will look like as we continue on the journey, so that we will be able to evaluate, are we following the lead of the Spirit, or are we following the lead of the flesh? All the way through Galatians 6.10, which is essentially through the end of the body of this letter. There's, there's a little PS section at the very end from verses 11 through 18. We'll cover two weeks from now and wrap up the letter. But from this point, from Galatians 5.25 all the way through Galatians 6.10, Paul paints a picture of a church community that is in lockstep with the Holy Spirit. He lets us know what it looks like. He shares six characteristics of a church that is living in step with the Spirit. And we're going to consider three of them this week and, and then the other three next week. And today, we're going to consider what it means. What it means to keep in step with the Spirit who leads us and then share a couple examples of what a church looks like when the Spirit of God is at work in its midst. So first... What, what does a spirit-led church look like? Well, first, a spirit-led church keeps in step with the spirit. Paul says in verse 25, if we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Paul's using this conditional statement, this if-then uh, uh, phrasing, not to, to cause doubt, to be like, well, oh, is, is he? Does he actually, do we actually live by the spirit? He's, he's actually wanting to to provide confirmation. He's saying, you do live by the Spirit. You, you don't, the only reason you have life in Christ at all, the only reason you have faith in Christ at all is because the Spirit has come and enlivened your dead heart. We have been made alive by the Spirit of God. And, and this is the nature of the Spirit of God. He is life-giving. It's the Spirit who was there at the creation of the universe when life was first breathed into creation. And it is that same all-powerful life of love that has been poured into us. The same Spirit, not, not a diluted version of the Spirit, but the same Spirit who gave life at the beginning of the universe now gives life to dead men and women. We were spiritually dead in our sin, but now we live. We have come alive to God. And as we've seen throughout this letter, especially in chapter 5, we are new creations in Christ. But, but here's the good news. God did not raise us from the dead so that we would remain still. He is taking us somewhere. The point of conversion is not the end of the journey. It's the beginning of the journey. When you were baptized, that's not a celebration that you finally made it. That's a rite that says, it's time to start walking. It's time to start walking by the Spirit. 
And in this new life, we are becoming something. We are becoming something more glorious than all of our earthly ambitions could ever hope to achieve. When we are taught in this life to, to make something of ourselves, well, I, I can easily promise you that your greatest earthly ambition, however good it is for yourself or for your children, it is puny when compared to God's plans for you in Christ. He has sent his spirit to take us to heights we could never reach on our own or in our own strength or in our own power. He has come to take us to the very life of Christ himself so that we will not only behold him, but we would be like him. There is a wonderful next step for all of us who have been made alive by the Holy Spirit, this gift that we've received by faith. Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, then let us keep in step with the Spirit. This, this language in the Greek, it, it almost has military connotations. It, you get the idea of, of marching in military formation. Essentially, keeping in step with the Spirit means that it's the Spirit who sets the pace of our life in Christ. It's the Spirit who sets the pace of our life as a corporate body in Christ. And then we follow him. We follow him accordingly. The Spirit is leading us on a journey. And this is a journey to become more and more like Jesus. We keep in step with the Spirit. And when we do that, we will be living and breathing examples of the person of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, as we've said for a couple weeks now, this journey is not without conflict. In fact, there is conflict until the journey ends. There's a conflict within the heart of every single Jesus follower. It's a conflict between the flesh and the spirit. And we have a choice every single day to either walk by the spirit or walk by the flesh. And we will know the path we've chosen, as Avery uh, shared with us last week, by the fruit that is produced in us and by our lives. He, he covered the distinction between the two paths, the path of the flesh and the path of the spirit. And, and these two paths... They, they not only lead in very different directions, but ultimately they end in very different destinations. Um, we, we've all experienced this, especially, let me, listen, y'all, in eastern Kentucky, you take a wrong turn. I mean, there are places in, in some rural counties that if you turn left, you're headed to civilization. You're going toward Lexington, okay? Eric and I experienced this once when uh, there was a detour. We couldn't get on I-75, and so we had to take a detour through a rural county. And as we were going, I, I'd been there like once before. We were early in our marriage, and so it was kind of late. It was getting dark, and uh, Eric was like, are you sure you know where to turn up here? Because there was a clear turn on this large, larger highway. She's like, are you sure you know which way you're going? I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. She's like, well, there's a, a small gas station right here. Why don't we stop and just ask somebody? And honestly, I, I don't, I, I hope that this wasn't just pride that, you know, oh, no, I'm going to be the man. I'm going to make the decision here. I was kind of honestly afraid for my life because a little like rural gas station in eastern Kentucky, you just don't know, you don't know what you're going to get, okay? So uh, we go to the end of the road and you turn left, you're going, you're going to glory land, right? You're going to Lexington. You turn right, I don't know where you're going, um, but, but you're going out in the mountains somewhere and, you know, you're probably going to run into a dead end road. Actually, that road, even though it's a highway, may be a dead end if you turn right instead of left. And uh, we, we turned the wrong way, just long story short, we turned the wrong way. I had to turn around about 30 minutes later, realized it a little too late. Um, but the point, we're all on this journey in life, and it deeply matters 
which way you're going. And the destination will be determined by your experience along the path. Okay? So as we journey along as individuals and as we journey along as a church, it is vital that we know that we are on the right path. Are we following the Spirit? Are we keeping in step with the Spirit? Or are we leaving Him behind and going our own way? It's so important for us to know this because if we're claiming to believe in Jesus, yet we're not keeping in step with the Spirit, we're wasting our lives. We're wasting our lives. Now, how can we know that we are keeping in step with the Spirit instead of chasing after our own selfish desires? Many answers we could give to that. Paul actually gives us an answer here. He offers a couple practical and general exhortations, one negative and one positive, to demonstrate what keeping in or keeping in step with the Spirit looks like. A Spirit-led church, then, not only keeps in step with the Spirit, but a Spirit-led church First, resist comparison and competition with one another. And second, a spirit-led church cares for one another. Let's consider them one at a time. So first, a spirit-led church resists comparison to and competition with one another. So Paul begins with a negative exhortation. He says in verse 26, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. I love how he says that. Let us not become conceited. We will become like whatever or whoever we are following. So one way to know whether you're following the spirit or you're following the flesh, what are you becoming like? He warns us here. Do not become conceited. And then he explains what it means to be conceited or how it displays in the life of a community provoking one another, envying one another. When we do not keep in step with the Spirit, when we are not following the Spirit's lead, we will become more self-centered, or another way to say it, we will become more self-obsessed. And this, this kind of makes sense. Because if you're not following the Spirit, you're likely following your own selfish, sinful desires. So if we're becoming more like the fulfillment of the desires of our sinful nature, it makes sense that the journey would be characterized by self-obsession or self-centeredness. Paul's basically saying here, when we do not keep in step with the Spirit, our lives and our church will be known for comparison, not care. In, in 5.26 we just read, but also in Galatians 6.3, let me read that for you really quickly. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Boy, that's a word right there. If you think you're something when you're actually nothing, you're deceiving yourself. Paul's warning us to not think of ourselves too much. Paul's talking about pride. Now, Pride does not begin with thinking too much or too little of ourselves. Pride doesn't begin with self-exaltation or self-pity. Pride begins with something way more innocent than that. Pride begins with thinking of ourselves too much. Not thinking too much of ourselves, not thinking too little of ourselves, just 
thinking of ourselves too much. It's self-obsession, self-centeredness. We come first. When we look out at other people, we're looking out through a lens of comparison. How, how are their lives, their actions, their families, their choices comparing to my own? This is the path of the flesh. So he says, first, let us not become conceited. Well, what does it mean to be conceited? It's, it's almost one of those words where you don't need a definition, but you know it when you see it. You, you know when someone's being conceited, or you, you may know when you're being conceited. Conceit is vain or empty glory. And, and it comes when we compare ourselves to one another. When we are so focused on ourselves that our primary disposition toward others is one of comparison, then it leads to two kinds of actions. We will either provoke one another in our attempt to compare ourselves to each other, or we will envy one another. So let's, let's consider each of those. We know we are not following the Spirit when we look down on other people, when we feel superior to others. You know, we see how someone's living, we compare their decisions to ours, and then we feel good about ourselves. Because I may have a lot wrong with me, but at least I'm not that guy. At least I didn't make that mistake. At least I didn't choose that path. And how this can play out is we provoke them. We challenge them. We, we compete with them. That's what the word provoke essentially means. It's a challenge. It's a competition. It's our attempt to show and prove so that not only we know it in our hearts, but we want the whole world to see that we are wiser and we are more faithful, that we know what's best and they are wrong while we are right. This shows up so frequently in gossip. It shows up so frequently in gossip. Those seemingly innocent conversations, especially in the life of a church, where we point out where others are wrong, where others are weak, where others are messing up, and where we are strong, and where we are right, and where we are wise. Those little conversations that spread dissension and division like wildfire, while in the midst of them we rarely ever mention our own deficiencies, our own failures, our own sins. This is so radically different from what Paul's about to call us to in Galatians 6.1, it's not even funny. Conceit, showing up in gossip, always happens when we talk about another person's sins. When we talk about another person's flaws or failures. And this is not the same. It's completely opposite from the gospel-motivated, gentle, and humble feedback that Paul is calling us to offer here in Galatians 6.1. We're going to see in just a minute. Conceit leads us to pride or pity ourselves in comparison to others. C.S. Lewis in, in Mere Christianity has a great chapter on pride. I really encourage you to read it. There's a quote from it that says, Each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. Pride is essentially competitive. It is competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. We are in danger of conceit in this season that we find ourselves in. We're in danger of conceit. Paul says very clearly, let us not become conceited. It is not the way of the Spirit. 
we've encountered this, this odd, this strange phenomenon on, on our journey, this, this COVID-19 phenomenon. And if we're not self-reflective, if we don't test ourselves, if we aren't careful, we'll allow it to destroy us because we will allow conceit to grow in our hearts, pride to grow in our hearts, and comparison to be the lens in which we view our brothers and sisters in this faith family. So is this difficult, strange, uncertain season going to cause us to change course and start following the flesh? Or are we going to dig down deep, dig down deep in our hearts and find the spirit-empowered grit to journey on with him? If, if we are comparing ourselves to others, as, as each of us responds to this virus, we are going to be prone to provoke one another. That's what comes next. Conceit leads to provoking one another. And so we're going to try, here's how we'll be tempted. Just, you're probably already tempted in this way. You may not even realize it. Here's some language for you. We will try to show and prove why we know best and why others are wrong. These desires are not of the Spirit. Do not follow them. Do not follow those inclinations. They will not lead you to become more like Jesus. They will lead you to become less like him. So Paul is warning us against the temptation to scan the church and compare ourselves to one another. And when we do this, we are either going to rejoice that we don't have what others have and provoke them, or we will lament that we do not have what they have and envy them. But either way, it will be a comparison that leads to conceit. Now, essentially, a journey of following the flesh causes us to deceive ourselves. If you look at Galatians 6, verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We lose sight of ourselves when we start comparing ourselves to other people. We, we lose sight of our status in the world. We, we either see ourselves as superior to others and provoke them, or we see others as superior to us and we envy them. So this is really important. What, what is the key then to knowing yourself rightly in such a way that allows you to avoid pride and avoid conceit? What's the key to being released from pride and set on the path of the Spirit once again? And, and how can we escape the community destruction of Galatians 5.26 so that we can live out the community building of Galatians 1 through 10. I think it's because Galatians 6, 3, and 4 exist together. I think it's because they can exist together. So verse 3, great word, right? If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Bam. But then in verse 4, but let each one test his own work and then reason, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So we can go from wrongly seeing ourselves as something to rightly seeing ourselves as nothing, while at the same time testing ourselves in such a way that we can boast in ourselves without conceit. How on earth does that work? How can you boast in yourself without being conceited? How, you know, how, how can you avoid competition and comparison with one another? 
Well, we have to adjust our source of comparison. Lewis once again says, once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. So when we refuse to compare ourselves to others, we are free to see ourselves as we are, both nothing and something in Christ. That only happens when we compare ourselves not to one another, but to Jesus. Okay? When we compare ourselves to Jesus, we will see that we are nothing. That at the end of the day, when we're, when we're all compared to Jesus, we are nothing. And we're no better than anybody else. But also, when we compare ourselves to Jesus, we see in him the great gift that he has provided for us. And so we see the glorious end of the Spirit-led journey. The Spirit is leading us to become more like Jesus. So when we compare ourselves to him, we're actually able to boast whenever we're taking steps along with the Spirit. Because we know that is our great goal. That is the great end of this journey so that we would be like him. We cannot remain conceited or prideful if in our pursuit of Jesus, we compare ourselves to him. He frees us to think of ourselves less and to instead remember that our lives belong to him. The gospel sets us free from comparison and competition in the church. We are each dreadfully sinful with a glorious future, all because of what Christ has done. He bore our pride on his humble shoulders as he died on the cross. So church, let's keep in step with the spirit by resisting toxic comparison with one another. Okay, so there's the negative one. A spirit-led church, it resists comparison and competition with one another. But here's the positive one. A spirit-led church resolves to care for one another. Resolves to care for one another. And the power of the Spirit, who gives us life, who leads us toward Christ, we keep in step with him. How do we know we're keeping in step with him? First, we're resisting, but now we're resolving to care for one another. We stop becoming obsessed with ourselves in comparison to one another, and we start obsessing over how we can serve one another, over how we can care for one another. So two exhortations, and then we're going to stop, consider the rest of them next week. First, We care for one another through restoration. Look at Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. All right, so Paul gives a situation. Someone is caught in sin. The the language in the Greek implies that this person has fallen into sin by surprise. It's taken them off guard. This wasn't a premeditated uh, sin that they committed. This, this was something that was unplanned. It was unforeseen. And yet they have fallen into the trap of temptation. We've all experienced this in so many different ways. We, we didn't plan to sin in this way, but t- we, we fell into temptation. We fell. You know, we were caught. We were trapped. We were ensnared. And so Paul says, if, if there's a person who is caught in sin in this way then those of you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, what does it mean to restore one another gently? Because there are no other options here. I'm not even going to waste time going into the other ways that people have tried to restore others. There's only one option here that Paul's giving us. When you restore someone who has fallen in sin in this particular way, you restore them gently. It means that first... We recognize we are just as susceptible to temptation and sin as our brother or sister who we are restoring from temptation and sin. 
That's why he says, right after he says restore, he says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. We don't rejoice when others fall in sin. I've seen this. Be a prominent pastor who falls in sin, there'll be a church member who falls in sin, and others feel vindicated somehow. I knew he wasn't perfect. I knew she didn't have it all together. We, we somehow rejoice. We, we don't rejoice when others fall into sin. You know why? Because when we see someone fall into sin, here should be our first thought, that could be me. That, that could easily be. That could be me tomorrow. I, I could easily fall into sin in this way. But have you ever noticed? I know you've noticed. Have you ever reflected on it, though? why so many Christian communities are not usually close enough to confess and confront sin in one another? How often have you experienced it? How often have you been in a life group where sin was confessed? I, I hope those of you are reflecting and you're saying, oh yeah, it happens. It happens. We see it. I hope it happens. I hope you see it. It's not common though. You know why we resist it? We resist it because it's, it's most likely that we fear that other church members will not care for us. They will compare. They will compare themselves to us. And they may provoke us. They may judge us. We may see their conceit and their pride. We may receive a harsh challenge from them. But what if the culture of our church was dictated by the Spirit? What if it's the Spirit who's setting the pace and we're just keeping in step with him? What then would we see when a brother or sister falls into sin? Gentleness, kindness, humility, and yet a resolve to not let anyone fall off the path. We restore, but we restore gently. The Spirit leads us to pursue one another when we fall into sin. The, the Spirit does not lead us to run away from each other or turn a blind eye or to run so that we can condemn. The Spirit leads us to gently restore one another when we fall off the course and we don't leave one another behind. Those who are conceited, who compare themselves to others, oh, they will restore a fallen brother or sister, but they will do it in a spirit of pride. They will go to restore them so that they can, so that, you know, you can be like me. those of us who are spiritual. Now, when Paul says spiritual, he doesn't mean the super Christians in the church. Whenever someone sins, go find the super Christians. Go find the, the spiritual ones. He's, he's saying those of us who are walking by the Spirit. Those who are spiritual. Those who are in step with the Spirit. Those who have been near to the one whose presence is indicated by the fruit of gentleness. those who are walking by the Spirit, you go. You go to this fallen, ensnared, trapped brother or sister with humility and gentleness because we know we're not super Christians. We're merely Christians. So we go and we restore, but we do it gently. We must love and care for one another enough to pick one another up when we fall. Keeping in step with the Spirit demands it, and keeping in step with the Spirit is a community effort. So we restore one another in a spirit of gentleness. But second, we care for one another, not just by restoration, but by bearing one another's burdens. 
Look with me. Galatians 6, verse 2. Really short verse. Could talk about it for days. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We all have burdens. We all do. Everybody sitting in this room, everybody spread across our city, tuning in in the live stream now. We have physical burdens, spiritual burdens, financial burdens. The church is supposed to be different than the rest of the world. We're a counterculture. Here's what that means here. You don't bear that burden alone. No matter how big it is, no matter how heavy it is, you don't bear it alone. We're not meant to walk this journey alone as we keep in step with the Spirit. We share resources. We support one another. We comfort one another. These burdens could be related to illness or emotional struggles or family struggles, work struggles or financial struggles. So many burdens are represented across our faith family and they will always be present with us as long as we live in this age before the return of Christ. But we don't bear them alone. We bear them together so that no member of our church is crushed beneath their weight. Now, I would be foolish to promise you that the rest of your life will be burden-free because you are a Christian, because you're a member of Trace Crossing. That, that would be foolish to promise that. That's not true. But it is my deepest hope that I could, with great joy and integrity, promise that as long as you are a member of Trace Crossing, you will not bear a single burden by yourself. I would love to promise you that. And some of you know that to be the case. You have felt camaraderie from your brothers and sisters in Christ that have come alongside you to help bear the weight of the burden that you carry. And it's certainly the case for me and my family. But I don't want to jump away from this too quickly. Burden-bearing requires sacrifice. I, I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way. If you're going to help someone bear a burden, you're taking on weight, right? You're, you're taking on the weight. Like when we were, I was helping move Avery's, some of his stuff into his house, and we had some really, really heavy furniture that we were carrying. I wanted to just like leave Avery to drag it or try to pick it up himself. But as soon as I told him, yeah, man, I'll help you, no problem. And I get under that thing, I'm like, ooh, what have I done? What have I done? My back's going to go out. But when you help bear a burden, you bear the weight. So burden bearing requires sacrifice. The point of bearing another's burden is that the weight is shifted to you, either in part or in whole. All right, so why does a spirit-led community bear burdens together? Because the spirit is leading us to Christ, is leading us to become like Jesus Christ is a sin-bearing Savior. The weight of our sin and God's wrath against our sin shifted to him in full. And so the result is that we receive the gift of pardon and power to live as God's people by faith. We are relieved of the burden. We gain. And we only gain. We're only relieved because Christ took the burden from us and he bore it in our place. So we do the same thing for each other. Whenever we have opportunity, we see another brother or sister with a burden. 
our inclination as those who are keeping in step with the Spirit should be to run to them so that we can help bear the load. And when we see that happening in our church, we can with joy and confidence say, we are keeping in step with the Spirit. It's the Spirit who's setting the course for our church. So let's live lives that mirror Christ. Let's continue to keep in step with the Spirit. When the Spirit of God is at work in our church, we will know it. It will be unmistakable. Because what will be seen is a group of flawed sinners who might not have hardly anything else in common, refusing to compare themselves to each other, refusing to compete with each other, and striving in every way they can to care for one another. Such self-sacrifice, such love, and such service will put the person of Jesus and the power of the Spirit on full display. In other words, we will be shaped into disciples who glorify God by loving him and others. That's the legacy that I want us to leave. That's the mark that I want us to make on this church and through us to our city and to the nations. So church, the Spirit sets the pace and he is leading. Let's keep in step with him.